Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, New Blue Party of Ontario leader Jim Carajalios joins the show to talk about the upcoming election and also Urban Student talking about Canada's place in the world and whether it can join the legions of great powers. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. The Andrew Lawton Show, good to have you aboard the program here on Friday, May 20th, 2022. It is a long weekend. Hope you have great things planned, getting together with the family, having a barbecue, opening the cottage, whatever the case may be. And one thing that I want to bring up that I I think is very important here, I am not here right now. This is not live. I am, as this comes out on a plane to Zurich, Switzerland, where, as I mentioned in the previous couple of shows, I am going to then rent a car and head on over through the Swiss Alps to Davos to cover the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. And this is something that I, I'm very much looking forward to. I've had people, I, literally, I've had people just come up and stop me and say, I hear you're going to Davos. Good for you. I, I'm supporting you. So thank you to all of you for doing that. I, I, like I said, I make no promises about what coverage is going to look like. I do know, because the agenda came out, that uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne, Canada's industry and innovation minister, is going to be speaking about the jobs of tomorrow. So we'll have to cover that session. Haven't yet seen any other Canadian cabinet ministers on the speaking agenda, but I I know from past summits they've had these things tend to change and they get to more they morph over time as the event nears and even during the week so we'll keep an eye out for that but I do want to just say thank you to all of you who have chipped in to support this if you want to do so now, you can head on over to donate.tnc.news. It's not, I mean, we're doing our best to keep costs down. I'm going alone, but it's not an inexpensive undertaking. So uh, we're doing this because we feel that there is a story here and we want to get past the conspiracy theories and, and past the people that are just dismissive because they think any criticism is a conspiracy theory and actually talk about in their own words what it is that they're doing and, and how Canada ha- has really tried to hitch itself to the so-called Davos agenda voluntarily. Again, we're not talking about puppet masters here. We're talking about an ideological framework that leaders like Justin Trudeau are all too happy to take up. So that's why we're going. We'll have lots of coverage of that in the days ahead and the next week as I am on the ground in Davos. So thanks again to those who have supported that. I want to shift gears a little bit and do a follow-up to a discussion we had yesterday on the show with Derek Sloan, leader of the Ontario Party. And as I mentioned at the beginning of that show, originally what I wanted to do was have Derek Sloan as the leader of the Ontario Party and Jim Carajalios as leader of the New Blue Party on at the same time because I, I've been fielding emails from a lot of uh, conservative, and I use that with a small c, voters that don't know how to navigate having these two upstart parties that it seems like on the surface, and we'll dig into this in this discussion, are, are going after the same voters and, and talking about a lot of the same issues. So uh, we had that, and obviously the topic of, of unity between these two parties came up a lot in that interview, Derek Sloan made a a number of accusations against uh, the New Blue and against Jim Carajalios, which is why I I wanted to have the two on at the same time. Uh, And then the I had said during the show, I I was going to extend an invitation to uh, Jim Carajalios to come on to respond. And I'm very pleased to have uh, Jim here now. Uh, Jim, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Uh, It's always good to be on, Andrew. It's unfortunate we haven't been on for a couple of years, but it's good to be back. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I've talked about a lot of the themes that you have been beating the drum about as well when it comes to uh, the lack of independence of MPPs. We had both you and, and Belinda on when the party was formed and, and when she was kicked out of caucus. But right now we're seeing a, a fracturing of the conservative movement more broadly here. And I, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about just the conservative party, but let's just begin for people that aren't as familiar. Is the new blue trying to be a, a more conservative version of the PC party, or is it trying to be a, a PC party without the negatives and the corruption you've identified within that party or, or something else entirely? Well, the PC party is not a conservative right of center party anymore. They've made it very clear with the budget they released before the election started. And just this week, like the last couple of days, Andrew, they're they're bragging about cutting deals with labor bosses, Andrew. They're they're bragging about it. We've got the labor bosses in our pockets. And the lobbyists online are bragging about it. It's great for the PC party. They are going after left-wing voters. They are now transformed into being the wing in Ontario of the Justin Trudeau Liberal Party of Canada. And they've extended the legacy of the McGinty win liberals. Now, a lot of Ontario voters are just being made aware of this because a lot of people are busy working, taking their kids to school in, in the four years, and they check into politics like normal people when there's a campaign, not like us junkies who are following it probably a little too closely. But more and more, increasingly, people are noticing that the PC party holds their traditional base and their values and principles that they claim to have. When you ran, Andrew, in 2018 as a candidate, they have contempt for those values and principles. So it's not just about the corruption, but that's what unifies people behind the new blue party is the lack of integrity in the process. The fact that you can't speak up in a grassroots way and influence the process in the PC party. And there's no one else to go uh, to vote for on June 2nd. And when Belinda got ejected and 19 of us got ejected from the Cambridge PC Riding Association, we formed the new blue party a year and a half ago. And in our first election, we got 124 names on 124 ballots across the uh, province. Uh, you mentioned a few moments ago, I, I think, the painful point of politics, which is that the freaks uh, that live in this world, like you and I and a lot of the people who tune into this show, are, are a lot more connected and engaged on these issues year-round than the average voter, which, which touches on the point I made a couple of moments ago, that a lot of voters don't know how to navigate having multiple uh, parties that are presenting themselves as conservative options. And when I reached out to your uh, communications director, because I wanted to help the viewers sort this out, I was told, and you can correct me if this is representative of your view or not, that there was no interest in debating or discussing on a panel with Derek Sloan because there, there was basically a, a refusal to accept that as a legitimate party. So how do we go from that to you wanting to respond to things that Derek Sloan is saying? Uh, that's, not, that's not my view on your invitation. We asked you to invite all the parties because we're not running an election campaign against Derek Sloan and the fraudulent things that he says and he has said four months. We're running against the PCs, the NDP, the Liberals, and the Greens. And Derek Sloan decided four months ago he wanted to run candidates against the new blue party. That's not what we're doing. That's not what we've been doing on social media for two years, on our radio ads, on our literature, and our lawn signs. We're running against the establishment parties. So we, I made the instructions very clear. Ask Andrew to reach out to the establishment parties and set up an all-candidates meeting. And if the Ontario party is invited, we'll do that. Some of our candidates have been invited locally to all candidates' meetings, and some Ontario party candidates are there. That's great. So that's our view. Now, when it comes to Derek Sloan, Derek Sloan's a fraud. That's where you start with on the occasion. Derek Sloan's claim to fame in 2020 
was that he achieved $300,000 in donations to be on the ballot of the Conservative Party candidate. Remember that? You remember? Yes. No one knew who Derek Sloan was except for people locally in his riding before then. And he just submitted his financial return to Elections Canada. He brought this up. I've never brought this up before. He made false allegations on your show that I've brought up his financial record. I never have. But since he's brought it up and made false allegations against me, let's go deep dive into that. You know that he never raised the $300,000 that he claims to have raised to get on the ballot in the conservative leadership race, the one that I got kicked out of when I was in third place. He had to get $75,000 worth of loans and go to the bank and get a line of credit, all public information now on his filing, to get from $200,000 plus to $300,000. So consistently since 2020, Derek Sloan has been a fraud in everything that he's pitched forward. And yes, he I, I haven't seen the return you're referencing, but this okay. is within the rules of the party because they approved him as a candidate, I presume, correct? Well, you'll have to ask the, the party about that because when I was in the race, no one ever thought you could take a bank loan to get the $300,000. Apparently, you had to raise the money to get the $300,000, but a loophole was exposed for Derek Sloan, not in the rules that that could be allowed, but the party made a cut for Derek Sloan. And he stayed in the race, despite the fact that he said very inflammatory things in that race. And you remember, Andrew, we got you interviewed me at the time. I got kicked out twice out of that race. Yes. So there's always been a cloud on Derek Sloan as to, like, what's he about? Because what he says is never the truth. It's always two degrees or a complete fabrication of what's really going on. And he decided to get into provincial politics. And you did a great job of exposing the fact that he's jumping around. Federal politics, Alberta, independent, provincial politics in Ontario. And he said on your show on June 2nd, June 3rd, he's probably not interested in sticking around in provincial politics. Maybe he'll run for the leadership of the United Conservative Party of Alberta next, Andrew. Who knows with Derek Sloan? He's all over the place. But one thing is consistent. Everything he says and everything he said on your show is a lie, totally, from the meetings that he claims were set up and how they went down to um, uh, how the uh, process unfolded where he decided to jump in last minute. And it's unfortunate because for years, when I talk about things like 2018, when I ran for president, you were there, Andrew, and that was a rigged convention. They rigged it. They stuffed the ballots. People voted more than once. I can't get a hearing from anyone, mainstream media or outside, that allow me to discuss the ins and outs because that's inside baseball. But now we're going to spend time with less than two weeks to go till June 2nd to talk about inside baseball and what Derek Sloan's up to. And that was by design. Him and his friends in the back who have connections to the PC party, they wanted this narrative. And, uh, you know, they've been half effective in doing it for this June 2nd election. We're talking about, in, in, in putting you and Derek uh, up front right now, we're talking about two people that have had to experience a lot of the same uh, ant or, uh, same tricks from the establishment. You've both been, I mean, he's been kicked out of caucus. You were disqualified from the race. So how, I don't think it's believable to say that this is actually a guy that has a secret deal with the establishment when he's been rebuked by that establishment in very similar ways to how you have been. He got kicked out by Aaron O'Toole after Aaron O'Toole had enough with him. Uh, but in, in that entire leadership, Derek Sloan uh, forced his attacks and focused his attacks on Leslie Lewis. And he had nothing negative to say about Aaron O'Toole except for one email on a carbon tax, which he criticized all of them. So you may not think it's believable, but I've lined up the facts and it's available on ublontario.com because he decided to decline having a meeting with me in the fall when I reached out to him and create this party. And what he's done for four months is exactly what he says he doesn't do, smear and attack 
And he likes that kind of thing as a weaselly way doing it behind the scenes. But when I bring it out to the public and the forefront, he doesn't like it. He doesn't like being held accountable. So he thinks it's okay for him in a leadership to repeatedly attack Leslie Lewis over and over again. I mean, she's not perfect, Andrew, but certainly better than Aaron O'Toole. She would have been as leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. But Derek Sloan decided he was going to attack Leslie Lewis in that race so that 20% of his voters could go to Aaron O'Toole on the up, up ballot. And uh, But when we call out Derek Sloan, when he decides to run candidates against the New Blue, he doesn't like it. He doesn't like his record being put on the table. And he got kicked out of caucus once. The history of me and Belinda in the conservative movement goes back to 2017, when I was sued by the PC party. Then in 2018, they rigged a presidential race against us. Then I got kicked out of the federal race twice by a LEOC that was run predominantly by Caroline Maroney's campaign team. And then my wife got kicked out of the PC caucus two weeks later. And 19 of us got kicked out of the PC party in Cambridge. And do you know, oh, do you know who was on that PC executive with Brian Patterson, Andrew, who voted in favor of kicking me and Belinda and 17 others out of the Cambridge PC Riding Association undemocratically? Derek Sloan's riding president at the federal level. He was on that executive, but Derek doesn't like to say that. He doesn't like to talk about his record and what he's done behind the scenes and who he's working with behind the scenes. So this is where we get to the crux of this. And I, I get your emails. I get all the parties' emails. And, and the amount of time that you spend talking about these issues and, and similar issues, when you say your, your opponent is, is Doug Ford's PCs, makes it look like you're either threatened or bothered by it. So is, is that an accurate assessment by this party that you say has it out for you? Uh, not threatened, uh, but when someone makes allegations, it's important to answer to them. Don't you think, Andrew? When, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. When, but but when we're talking about unity, both you and, and Derek say at, at the genesis of it that you were open to this. So and you've both provided or your parties have both what? provided uh, records of, of text messages going back months of, about that meeting you referenced. Uh, the Ontario party says that they called off that meeting, which it sounds like was going forward when you uh, went on the attack against Randy Hillier. Is, is that accurate? Is that why that meeting broke down? Uh, you'll have to ask them. Uh, we had two meetings with Pastor Michael Thiessen booked, and Mike Thiessen canceled them. Prior to that, we had been talking to Mike Thiessen and updating him inside information on the New Blue Party of Ontario. And Mike Thiessen came to a lunch meeting with a couple other pastors, including Pastor Aaron Rock, looked us in the eye and said they were for the New Blue Party. And they said, would you invite Randy Hillier? Would you let Roman Baber in? Would you let others in? I said, sure. And if they want to be the leader, let's have a leadership race. And he came out of that meeting looking us in the eye, you know, quoting the Bible, because that's what they do when they want you to believe them. And they came out of that meeting and he ran off to a couple of events with Randy Hillier, uh, where Randy Hillier announced he was going to start a, a, a provincial party. And when Randy Hillier's provincial party fell apart, uh, well, first those meetings got canceled, where I said to Derek, let's sit down, you and me, back in the fall. And Derek Sloan swore to me on the phone he was sticking with federal politics, not interested in provincial. I even offered Derek and his wife to start the New Blue Riding Association in Hastings. I said, maybe one of you would want to run. Like, let's just sit down and have a coffee. They canceled those meetings. And uh, after that, Mike Thiessen went into uh, work behind the scenes to start a party with Derek Sloan. And it's interesting because Derek Sloan keeps preaching this unity. But in every step he's taking federally or provincially, he's not interested in unity. 
He couldn't work with Max Bernier after being in a caucus with Max Bernier, right? He, he, he decided he can't run for Max. And while I was sick fighting cancer and getting back on my feet, getting the cancer out of my body, learning how to walk again, him and Randy and Max were touring around in a caucus, right? And here we are two and a half years later after, after Belinda was the first to stand up and say Doug Ford's lockdown bill is wrong. Randy picked up on it, Derek picked up on it, and Max was campaigning on it. Those three guys were in a caucus together and Derek couldn't get along with them. So Randy Hillier's not part of Derek Sloan's party. Derek Sloan wanted to run against Max Bernier federally, but somehow it's everyone else's fault. It's not Derek Sloan's fault and it's not the people behind them. He has my phone number. He could have picked up the phone at any time in the last seven months. The last time he called me was to tell me he was leading a provincial party in Ontario against the new blue. There was no discussion on working together. There was never a proposal. There was never, I want to be the leader of a party. There was nothing. And he's doing it specifically to waste our time and respond to these things and to try to stall us and our momentum going into June 2nd. Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, one of your, your, I say grievances, and don't, I wouldn't read too much into that, but one of your frustrations is that the Ontario Party is running candidates against New Blue. Now, one of the topics that came up in my discussion with Derek yesterday is that he had tried to perhaps make an arrangement where you weren't running candidates against each other. You'd have your own parties, you'd have your own leaders, but you wouldn't be uh, galvanizing each other's support. And New Blue has posted its response to the request for a meeting on that and, and derided it as a, a secret backroom deal the same sort of thing that you say happens in the PCs. Would that not have been an example of a, a positive discussion that you could have around unity? Why was that meeting, which I, I think sounds like an entirely fair uh, topic to broach between two party leaders, why is that something that you felt was uh, offensive to democracy? Is it, is it a realistic option, Andrew? So the New Blue Party of Ontario has thousands of members on don and donors. Do you know how many members the Ontario Party has? Zero. I don't know. Zero. They don't have membership in their party. And he talks about integrity and transparency and democracy. He doesn't have one member of his party. It's Derek Sloan. They had a party constitution, this Ontario party, that they created in 2018. And they were going around telling us in, 28, in 2020, when they were trying to talk to us about taking over the Ontario party, that we're not allowed to change their party of constitution or the party name. This is what the board of the Ontario party, all two of them were saying. And then they tore up that party of constitution and just put a new one in because there's no members. So they don't need to have a vote. New blue party started a year and a half ago. We've got thousands of members and donors riding presidents in place. We have a board that makes decisions. It's not the Derek Sloan show and his buddies in the back that remain nameless and secret. So when he rebuffs us in September and October, and I tried to put it all aside, I said, you know what? Derek Sloan had a spy on my leadership team who set me up to send an email out and he was working with Aaron O'Toole. And we have people in the New Blue team that worked on Derek Sloan's leadership and have told me firsthand that he was on the phone with Aaron O'Toole coordinating attacks against Leslie Lewis in that federal leadership. But you know what? I said, let bygones be bygones, okay? And let's, let me reach out to Derek on election day federally when it's not going to turn out all well. Okay. And then I asked for a meeting. Let's have a meeting. And the meetings kept getting pushed off. And then he came back in February or March, not him phoning me because, you know, he's not a stand-up guy, so he can't pick up the phone. He has other people saying, let's reach out to the new blue and let's tell them, you guys now have over 100 candidates in place. Well, we want you to stand down a bunch of your candidates. So he wants me 
to issue an edict and act like Doug Ford does in his party and appoint candidates and say, we're not running a full slate anymore because Derek Sloan has decided to show up and he's going to scramble and put in candidates last minute, even though he has no brand awareness, no literature, no platform, no lawn signs, nothing. That is the most destructive proposal for a new party that anyone can think of. And the only reason he would do that is to sabotage our efforts, not to work together. Working together would be to say, wow, Jim and Belinda have been building this for over a year, despite the fact that Jim was sick and they're back on their feet. And I wanna run provincially now because my time in federal politics didn't work out so well. So let me approach them about running federally, uh, provincially in Ontario, never did that. He wasn't interested. And in fact, when he was approaching us for a meeting, him and Rick Nichols hadn't even committed to running in the provincial election. They were asked and they were saying, well, we're still not sure if we're going to run the provincial election. So that letter that you unfortunately put up on your screen yesterday, yesterday's show, fake news is what that was, was a proposal for me to cancel a bunch of our candidates in favor of candidates who don't agree with the new blue, who don't want to run on the new blueprint, which are stuff like scrapping the $100 million per vote taxpayer subsidy of political parties in Ontario, banning lobbyists from internal party politics, getting rid of the Toronto Star's online gambling license, fighting against critical race theory, and the petition that Belinda read in the legislature that unfortunately Derek Sloan and Rick Nichols didn't want to promote. Rick Nichols voted in favor of Bill 67. This is the critical race theory bill. Yeah, yeah. All those things that we're talking about, Derek Sloan and his candidates don't want to talk about. Don't want to talk about wind turbines and high electricity rates. And he wanted me to cancel a bunch of our candidates going into our first election so we don't run a full site. And that's a sabotage tactic. So let's take a, the bigger picture look here. You're a voter. You are one of those people that we talked about at the beginning, Jim, that, that barely can muster enough energy and interest and time to pay attention to the normal politics of the Liberal, the NDP, the PCs, let alone these new parties that don't yet have the name recognition. How are you supposed to come into this and see what just seems like a lot of people that aren't willing to get along, that aren't able to put the cause of freedom forward. What, whoever is to blame, how is a voter supposed to work their way through this and, and have any confidence that we could have the freedom-centered alternative that all of the people in the Ontario Party and the New Blue claim to want? How, how is a voter supposed to navigate through this? Uh, the voters that are looking for an option against the establishment have united against the new blue party of Ontario. And you're right. If Derek Sloan united against or for, uh, sorry, they've united against the PC party and the establishment parties for the new blue party of Ontario. We have 124 candidates in the full slate and we're seeing it locally in Cambridge and the surrounding ridings. Every day we get momentum and Belinda's up for reelection. And it's unfortunate what Derek Sloan did. He's confused the issue. He's, um, he's created confusion for some, but there are over 10 million voters in Ontario. And our goal is to make the new blue party raise awareness for the new blue party in every single riding in our first election and keep moving forward after June 2nd. And we can't control what guys like Derek Sloan and his buddies that consider themselves important figures in the movement, as he said in your thing, in your interview with him, we are important, important people, and we should be treated important uh, as important people in these meetings. Uh, the New Blue Party of Ontario is representing hardworking parents and people in every single riding, and it would be a shame if, because of Derek Sloan's efforts, we fall short in Cambridge and Belinda doesn't get reelected. Be a shame, or in some other ridings. But largely, this is a distraction that has slowed us down 
a little bit, but there's 10 million more voters in Ontario that we have to look at, Andrew. And all we can do is keep moving forward and keep talking about the things that the establishment parties and Derek Sloan don't want to talk about. And that's how we're getting more and more people interested in the new blue party. Will you subject yourself to a leadership review after the election? We have a board, Andrew, and, and we're going to sit down and the board's going to make a determination. We also have members and we have a party constitution and there's triggers in place for members and riding associations uh, to have their voices heard on policy. And we're going to have future conventions face to face. We're the only new party that had nominations going into this election. We have members and donors in every single riding and we are a grassroots party and are committed to that at all aspects. So you're already jumping to the leadership review. We haven't even gone through our first uh, election campaign. Um, but I think the leadership speaks for itself, Andrew. We've put this together in a year and a half, despite some personal battles, despite distractions from guys like Derek Sloan and Randy Hillier. And uh, we're going to keep pushing forward. And, and on June 2nd, um, hopefully Belinda Gabriel re will get reelected and others will get elected. And uh, the best is yet to come in Ontario. I am jumping ahead, but I think it's a relevant question because earlier you said that there was a time when you would have been open to having perhaps a different leader to New Blue if the members chose them. So you as the leader could go to the board and go to the members and say, I I'm voluntarily opening up the door to a review of my leadership. And I'm asking if you would do that. Why would I do that now, 12 days before the election? Let's wait until see well, it's how... A, it's a commitment to the members that you say are the backbone of your party, that, that you think they should have a say no matter what happens after this election. If enough members want to have a leadership review, uh, uh, the board would consider it. And of course, I'm very confident in my leadership. I'm the one that's proposed a leadership race for Randy Hillier, for Roman Babber, for Derek Sloan, for whoever wanted it. But we're not going to have a leadership race for someone who's not a member of the party, or for a I'm not, saying a, I'm not talking about a race. I'm talking about a review. If the members want to call for a leadership review, we have triggers in the party to a call for that going to the board. But right now we're focused on June 2nd, Andrew, and you're jumping ahead beyond June 2nd to talk about uh, replacing or reviewing the leader of the party. We still got 12, 13 days left in the election. That's fair. So let me ask you a question I asked Derek yesterday. What do you consider a win? You're a new party. You've talked about this momentum. What do you consider a, a victory in, in your uh, scenario for June 2nd? We're very happy with where we're at. We wanted to establish a party for June 2nd because many people, including some of Derek's friends like Mike Thiessen, uh, said we need another option on June 2nd. And we've already, in our first campaign, have 124 candidates on ballots and 124 ridings, and we were the first to register 124. And so we're very happy with our progress. And our goal's always been clear, challenge the left, balance the narrative, change the course. And beyond that, it's up to the voters. And we're trying every day getting lawn signs out. We've got a ground game. You'll see the social media pictures, our candidates are canvassing and raising awareness. And um, uh, we're gonna keep going beyond June 2nd. Derek Sloan's not gonna go beyond June 2nd. It doesn't sound like he's committed to it, but we're committed to provincial politics in Ontario for the long term and to keep moving forward. And we'll see what the, do the uh, voters decide on June 2nd. And uh, if all goes well, uh, hopefully Belinda will get reelected and we'll get close to electing other MPPs into Queen's Park so we can continue to change the course and balance and challenge the left. Uh, these establishment parties are out of control. If you end up in a situation where you had a couple of new blue MPPs who uh, collectively held the balance of power in the legislature, could you even work with the PCs? Could you even work with this party, given all that you've said about it and your, your history with that party? Well, you, it, there's no deals with the PC party. They break every 
they don't even follow their own constitution. They don't even have free and fair votes. So how can you cut a quote unquote deal on an arrangement? You would be making an arrangement with them just like you would with Derek Sloan, knowing that they're going to break it, knowing that they're not going to follow their commitments or keep their commitments, uh, just like Derek Sloan doesn't keep his commitments. And we'd have to look at it um, uh, vote by vote uh, if that's the case. Um, but, you know, we're not we're not getting ahead of ourselves, Andrew. Uh, we got 13 days left in this election. And uh, we're a new party a year and a half in and the PCs and the liberals are brands that are over 100 years old. And uh, there's no shortcut for us. There's no uh, quick zip on the elevator ride from the first floor uh, to the top of the building. We got to do it step by step and the hard way and keep building momentum. And that's what we're going to do. Jim Karahalios, leader of the New Blue Party. Good to talk to you, Jim. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Andrew. Jim Carahalios, leader of the New Blue Party of Ontario. And what we will do, and what I'd like to do if the uh, leaders are available, and we've extended invitations to Premier Doug Ford as well, is to come on and actually talk about policy. But uh, what I wanted to do this week, as I said at the outset, is help people navigate through uh, the bad blood, the very legitimate uh, bad blood that you see between both, I shouldn't even say legitimate, but uh, the very real bad blood that you see between both of these parties. So I don't know if it's, it's cleared things up for you or maybe it uh, more difficult to understand which way you want to go as a voter but all we do is give you the information and you can decide for yourself what to do with it we've got to take a quick break here when we come back we're going to go from the little picture to the big picture and talk about canada in the world that's up next with Irvin student here on the andrew lawton show stay tuned you're tuned in to the andrew lawton show Welcome back to the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. We, we often talk about the internal dynamics and divides in Canada, the political fault lines, the cultural fault lines, and these are very important subjects and they can't be discounted even in what I'd like to discuss now. But I, I do want to take a much, much bigger picture, a global picture here of this country and where it fits into the world and, and how the domestic and the international, uh, the domestic and the global, how they tend to intersect. And, and there have been a lot of things I've been reflecting on as I read a book by a great friend of this program, which is Urban Student, Canada Must Think for Itself, 10 Theses for Our Country's Survival and Success in the 21st Century. So the title right there suggests a level of optimism. But if you look through the books, there are some very clear issues. I don't want to say problems, but certainly challenges and issues that are identified that I, I want to dig into. Urban Student joins me on the program again. Urban, good to talk to you, sir. Thanks for coming on today. Great to be back. Thanks for all your work, Andrew. I, I want to skip ahead here to, to one particular thesis that you put forward, and then we can talk about the bigger picture, because I, I think this one captures what's at stake here. You say, if Canada survives the century, it will be either a great power or a deep vassal state. And when I read through that, what you're saying, it sounds like, is that, you know, we're on the cusp of something here, but we could go in either direction, and very real challenges facing our lawmakers, our citizens, civil society right now, really affect in a dramatic way what things are going to look like in 2100. Uh, that's right. And I should say at the outset, first of all, thanks for your deep curiosity about that, that thesis. And one ought not to take offense when I say we have a potential, potentially deeply vassalized country in front of us. That's We're all in the common scenario. But we're coming out of a pandemic that has presented the country with, as I mentioned on your show, seven or eight systems crises. And we're coming into a world in which there's obvious conflict, but more tightly, if you look at our borders, we've got America to the south, China to the west, 
Russia to the north across the Arctic and Europe to the east. All told, ACRE, ACRE is the four point game. And if you do the math, it's 15 combinations of push, pull and pressure on our territory by these great powers at our, at our doorstep and literally at our doorstep. And I say, if we wish to survive, we either have to up our game hugely, in which case we'll become amongst, we'll be among the great powers at our doorstep. And these are at our doorstep, literally. Or we have to say it's just too big for us. And we vassalized even further into the country we know best, the United States, which is, a, is, is the most probable scenario. And it could be a good bet still. But because the United States is far weaker in the world of tomorrow, in my view, far less wise and could even be predatory on us and, and really push us around in their own interest, uh, it could be very painful indeed. So those are the two scenarios and also suggests, as I, as I mentioned in the book, that we should never again call ourselves a middle power. It is structurally impossible. We either are a deeply vassalized state, in which case, let's not pretend we are an extension of American power for better or worse, or we are a great power amongst the great powers at our doorstep, which requires a huge upping of the level of thinking, resources, and ambition. You know, a line from a, a movie jumps out when you say that, though, you know, and I'm just envisioning Justin Trudeau saying, you know, we're a great power. We're just having trouble getting the word out, it, you know, because in order to be a great power and to wield that power, you, you have to have that power respected and accepted and acknowledged elsewhere. And I, I don't think Canada is there yet. So if we if we say that point A is where we are now and point C is Canada being a great power, what's point B? Well, we're, we're, we're tending towards A and A minus and A minus minus. I mean, the, the, the trajectory is increased vassalization and with these major powers at our doorstep playing across our territory and the conflict between the United States and China over Meng Wanzhou and, and even the USMCA is just a small symptom of the great cuts that can happen once these powers start to play across our territory with us unable to play. So we go increasingly vassalized. I don't like to do Twitter feed or, or rhetoric about power. That's why I say we cannot call ourselves a great power on the structure I present. We're either vassalized or, or a major power. I want to disabuse also your distinguished listeners of even the idea of a great power because it has a moral connotation. We're either a term-setting country or a term deeply term-taking. Hmm. I would like us to be a term-setting country in our own interest and indeed for the world. And that requires well beyond the respect of others or before the respect of others. And this is your point B resources and the resources the underpin underpin power and and thinking the thinking of a term setting country we're not even there are much more than education of course they are education but they are economic resources diplomatic relationships richly around the world uh, military resources territorial resources natural resources population demography the mix of demography the commercial product and, and many other things besides, including transportation. And all of this needs to be choreographed in the service of a term-taking future, term-setting future. And if not, then we ought not to pretend. That means we might make a great bet that the United States will yet win this century, good on us. But we may not survive that century. We may become very miserable and divided indeed. The reverse is a huge investment doubling down on what we need to survive in a century that doesn't promise us anything and in which no country is thinking about Canada, we have to think for ourselves. The preface to thinking for ourselves, all those material resources, which will allow us to think at a higher level. When you look at the global landscape, I mean, including the countries that you've just acknowledged there, 
obviously size, population size, and, and GDP are, are very significant determining factors in, in overall influence. Government style, it doesn't appear, is as much. You've got China, an authoritarian dictatorship. You've got Russia. You've got the United States. I mean, three vastly different approaches to government, but they all have been in that, that top, top echelon as far as powerful nations are concerned. So, I mean, if you are looking at a country like Canada, and you're, you're trying, and I know you have a chapter on the challenge of planning, but if you were to plan Canada's future and, and really ensure that Canada is, as you mentioned, that term-setting country, you can't overnight control the GDP issue. Population size takes time and other countries populations are, are going to be growing as well so the relative advantage might not be there what is it that you can leverage to to become a term setter it's a great question and it's central to the book and, and by the way for your listeners again uh when we say planning we ought not to be uh twitterish about it every country plans and canada better plan properly in a democratic context if we're going to survive beyond tomorrow. What's yeah, our you're not talking move? about a command economy. You not know, a command s- economy. I'm talking about thinking planning. and resources, which every country needs, and we've had historically. The problem in the 21st century is how do great democracies, federal democracies no less, plan? How do we think beyond the tweet, beyond our nose, beyond the current crises? Now, what's our big move? The big move I commend in the book, and I think I, I articulated in part at a keynote uh, at, at which uh, you you were president and colleagues in Calgary uh, a few weeks ago, is that the North is melting, the North is opening up. Our big move in response to climate change is not to imagine from the South or from Toronto or Vancouver uh, or St. John, New Brunswick, they're gonna physically somehow transform the the, the climate through, through domestic action. Nay, our responsible move is that the Arctic is opening up. We ought to push our imagination northward Our Arctic, Canadian alone, is the size of the European Union. The population in Canada of that European Union-sized territory, which is 40% of our territory in total, is 115,000. That's the size of um, uh, Red Deer, Alberta, or Ajax, Ontario. That's not enough to do anything with the great respect to all my Arctic colleagues. And at that Arctic space, we have the Russians pushing on us, the Americans, the Chinese, increasingly the Europeans. We're surrounded by great powers. How do we embed them in a peaceful framework that makes us rich and saves the world? And the idea is to make our north, through cities like Whitehorse, Anuvik, and Yellowknife, the center of the world. And we are the center of the world geographically, just not through the south, where we're an appendix to the bigger empires. Through the north, we are the center of four continents, which provide us with a market size, seven to one in ratio, uh, greater than the American continental market alone, including the American continental market. So it's an economic vision through the North. It's a geopolitical vision of peace. And it is one of national sovereignty where we assert ourselves in a territory uh, that we would be negligent to, to ignore. We can't ignore it because then the country will collapse. That requires a shift in our resources and our imagination, our political pressure uh, to the North where we imagine that everything happens along the American border. So push it up. And that's our big exit from all the, the multiple crises coming out of the pandemic as well. 
It is interesting because going back to, I mean, John A. Macdonald's national policy, the the greatest challenge uh, in Canada and building a nation was uniting the country east to west from uh, British Columbia to the Maritimes. And, and that did, I mean, the Maritimes were a little bit later on, but but obviously they did happen through rail. We live in an era in which we don't rely on, on rail travel to get around. Why, I mean, when, I guess, would you say that that fundamental axis uh, shifted from an east-west one to a north-south one? When the book came out. <laughs> Good answer. It, it, it remains the case that our so It's theoretical at this point. Like there needs to be an attitude shift to recognize yeah, this. Yourself. Absolutely. And, and, and unfortunately, the last two years have shown that Canada does not respond at the leadership level at all levels uh, of government, indeed across the parties to crisis and to my chagrin. So we don't respond with mobilization to crisis uh, a la différence with the Americans, the Chinese, the Russians, many Europeans, they know how to mobilize the Israelis, the Persians, the Turks, they've got a mobilization capacity. We don't have that. So that means that in this great uh, four point or 15 combination game that I present, we could be crippled very quickly at a strategic level without even moving. So we better seize the moment while we can before it closes or before other of uh, these other more mobilizable countries do it for us in their name. Uh, so the uh, part of the book is to change what I call the mental map of our country. Basically, for all Canadians who love our country, educated and less educated doesn't matter. Look at the map. Look at what happens through the south. And as I, as I suggest, as the north opens up, because the melting of the Arctic is a new phenomenon, the rise of China in modern Canada is a new phenomenon. So the axis of, of of activity will be increasingly in the north and the west, which also begins to solve the western problem or, or the national unity uh, tension in, in Canada. Through the north, we are closer to Asia and China in particular than are the Australians. Through the north, we are closer to St. Petersburg and the former Soviet space, including Ukraine, than are, is Western Europe. Through the north, we are closer to the Nordic states of the European Union than we are from uh, Toronto. And we are close to the United States through Alaska and, 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 and several other northern states, all told uh, a market of two billion, which is seven times larger than the 330 million or so in the United States today. So it requires a huge change in the imagination. It is exciting for our young people who, are suffer who have suffered most during the pandemic. And it is sufficiently large and urgent to command our resources such that we're able to get out of our deep crises. And there are seven or eight crises that require much more than just road building, tax cuts, or rhetoric. We really need to mobilize. And I think that is sufficiently large to, to give us an exit and an exciting tomorrow. I, it's difficult to do anything globally when you have the internal unity challenges. And I know national unity is a very important chapter in, in this book. And I, I wanted to ask you about this because you have a lot of countries in the world like Australia, New Zealand that have indigenous populations. You've got uh, countries in the world that have, uh, you know, that are bilingual, Belgium, trilingual, quadrilingual, like Switzerland. I mean, the, these are, are not dynamics that are unique to Canada, although Canada does seem to have more of them because we have the indigenous uh, issue. We have the, the bilingualism. And, and if you uh, take into account indigenous languages, of which there are many, you've got 
countless language groups that exist in this country. Uh, and then you also have very fundamentally different cultures uh, between French culture and English culture in, in Canada, and even in English Canada, an Ontarian and a, a British Columbian and an Albertan, I think, have very different, perhaps less different than a Francophone and an Anglophone. So there are a lot of different things that need to work to keep Canada united. And I think we tend to take for granted that we're all committed to Canada in the same way. How do you solve, if you can, that unity challenge? It's a central question because we must solve our external challenges just as we solve the domestic ones. And you're right, I do treat national unity centrally. In the book, we have four national unity crises coming out of the pandemic. The first one is basic borders dividing the country in regulatory terms, sometimes in physical terms across the jurisdictions. The second one is the Western question, which is still wicked and maybe growing in, um, in, in profile. The third is the Quebec question was still alive. And, and, and if it ever does explode, whatever people think on Twitter, it would, it would compromise the entire country quite quickly. And the fourth one, as you articulate, is the indigenous challenge. Uh, the Western challenge I articulate can in part be solved through the North. The North is the fix to Wexit, as I argue. argue. We, rather than being pedantic, say we just redistribute or give more resources, more power to the West, the opening of the North to huge markets is psychologically very seductive to the West, which is very attached to at least Yukon and Northwest territories. Uh, the Quebec question, I argue, is uh, one to be managed. And I do talk about language in there. I talk about a national languages strategy, which will get us beyond what I think is a very, very uh, low standard hump that we've allowed to, 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 to occupy our, our political imagination. You talk about bilingual, trilingual, quadrilingual countries in Europe, and the same is true in Asia, in the Middle East and Africa. We're too obsessed with bilingualism. So I tried to break the logic and say that tomorrow as we plan education uh, post-pandemic, uh, we ought to imagine that everyone will simply speak English and French without blinking. And then they choose a third language because we need a third language for the indigenous uh, cause domestically, which, which helps to, to address that, but also for our wicked international circumstance, which I described. I talk about taking lessons from Northern Aboriginal Indigenous self-government treaties. There are something like 26 self-government arrangements in all of Canada, mostly in the North. And they're very, very practical and so far have been productive and they're much they're outside of the Indian Act and I think these are huge examples that we ought to multiply if only we understood how the North operates and finally on the the, the borders to our country that have been erected domestically that needs to be unwound yesterday and there must be a commission that that assiduously unwinds all of the regulations that were uh, improvised and, and unfurled on on the territory uh, militating against national unity immediately. Uh, we don't have time to, to go through the book page by page, and I don't think we'd want to because then people don't have a reason to buy it. So uh, do have a look at Canada Must Think for Itself for yourself so you can think for yourself about how Canada can think for itself. But I guess if we want to tie a, what we have covered up in a bow here, Irvin, let me ask you where the responsibility ultimately lies, because government has to be uh, just as a matter of, not just as a matter of law, but I think as a matter of, of the, the law of nature as well, responsive 
to the people it represents. It needs the consent of the governed. So the government cannot start centrally planning in a way that is unhealthy in a democratic society. Uh, but government can certainly guide and, and government can shepherd. But, but individual people are the ones that need to decide what they want the future of their country to be. So you've put out the roadmap here. Who do you think it is that, that is best suited or can take this up and move on these things? History suggests that it will take just a small group of leaders who have bathed in this type of thinking to move the country, and it can happen very fast. Now, when you say leaders, intellectuals, political leaders, uh, media figures, or a combination? All of it. If you, even if you look at the Quebec, Quebec Revolution, uh, the Quiet Revolution in, in the 60s and then in practice in the 70s and 80s, it was executed by a small group of people who were debating and thinking and that unfurled ambition at all levels of society. Politics, obviously, to begin with, politics is central in a good way. So leadership is central, and the, the converse scenario is devastating for the country. In the absence of such leadership, and unfortunately that's been the case throughout the pandemic, uh, the country could collapse. And I mentioned the 60-year rule there that the countries tend to last an average of 60 years in the modern sense after which they collapse through domestic or external circumstances. And we're well past due. That means we have to work that much harder to keep our country a going and vital concern. Irvin Student would encourage people to check out his book, Canada Must Think for Itself. Uh, Irvin, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure is mine. That was Urban Student. Some nice big picture topics as you head into the weekend here. And as I, I've mentioned at the beginning of the show and in the last couple shows, I am uh, going to be in the next. Actually, I might even be on a plane right now, depending on when this comes out. This one's pre-recorded. As I mentioned on the previous shows and earlier on, I'm actually on my way to Davos, Switzerland. In fact, when this comes out, I might even be on a plane. So I am going to be not doing the regular Andrew Lawton show next week as I cover the World Economic Forum annual meeting. But we will have lots of coverage at True North so I hope you do stay tuned for that and we'll talk to you upon my return next week hope you have a great weekend this is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North thank you God bless and good day to you all thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news